So we're kind of in the home stretch now. We've considered the uh, the way that the Lord created the world, uh, created us, that we might know Him, that we might uh, be uh, those who display uh, the glory and goodness and greatness of the One who made us in His image, uh, and that He has created this world uh, for us to enjoy His goodness. Uh, and for us to employ the things that he has made uh, to display uh, his goodness as well. Uh, we've seen that um, uh, that we fell uh, then by our own sin, uh, and that God immediately uh, made the promise of his, uh, of his son who would come as a seed of the woman and crush the serpent's head, uh, and how in anticipation of his son entering the world, uh, he uh, formed a nation that was supposed to be a display of the goodness of God, a people of grace who knew his gospel, they had his covenants, they had the word of God, they had the promises uh, from them according to the flesh would descend uh, the Christ, all of these advantages. Uh, that they had, and one of the great advantages that they had then uh, were these good laws and this community of those who had received grace uh, and therefore were uh, were to be gracious and that the rest of the world would be able to see uh, the great blessing of a nation that had a God so near it uh, and a God who had given them such just laws to follow. And we considered uh, briefly what... Uh, the implications of that would be for how we viewed material things, and how we use material things, uh, knowing, of course, that uh, Israel uh, never came close to fulfilling uh, that in, in the way uh, that they ought to have God reserving the great display of it uh, when he himself would invade in the person of his son. And we've seen two of those invasions. Uh, God the Son became a man, came, uh, in the incarnation and uh, not only uh, atoned for our sin uh, but also lived righteously and gave us uh, instruction that would both direct us to him and instruct us in what it looks like to belong to him and follow him and live out of his life in us uh, and so union with Christ being uh, the, the heart not just with, of how we are made righteous before God and justified uh, but also uh, union with Christ being the key to uh, and the explanation of the Christian life uh, and uh, the Lord Jesus giving us, again, much instruction uh, of what a life lived out of union with him would look like, uh, and that had lots of implications for what we, how we view material things, how we serve in this world, uh, stewardship, uh, towards God and generosity towards others. Uh, and then we saw the second invasion uh, of God into this world for the Son uh, as the God-man when he had taken his seat uh, in glory poured out his Spirit uh, and the Spirit now dwelling in uh, all those who are united to Christ by faith. Uh, the Spirit, of course, first gives us life uh, regenerates us that we might believe uh, in, uh, in this life-giving and this effectual calling. He gives us the faith by which we're united to Christ. 
Uh, and because we are sons, says the scripture, uh, God sends the spirit of his son into our hearts by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And, um, uh, and it is the spirit who especially communicates to us that we are no longer in our sin or in ourselves, but we are in Christ. Uh, and so the transition going from being in the flesh to being in Christ, or uh, if you've been attending or at least following along with the preaching from the midweek meetings, uh, in the spirit is used synonymously uh, with in Christ. And so there's this invasion again, the second person, the second invasion by the third person of the Godhead now indwelling uh, his saints. Uh, and so we've seen from uh, from Pentecost and the, uh, the first uh, expressions in the apostolic church uh, of stewardship and generosity and, uh, and uh, individual giving and generosity and corporate uh, giving and, and generosity and stewardship, uh, certain things being more the function of the individual believer, other things being uh, function of the church corporately. Uh, and uh, the Lord uh, giving us complete instruction um, doesn't leave us uh, without uh, what to do after the apostolic age. First uh, Timothy, Second Timothy, Titus, uh, in particular, uh, are books that are uh, transitional. Uh, now, First Timothy uh, is a book on Reformation, and Second Timothy is a book on transmission uh, from one generation to the next or transition from the apostolic to the, to the post-apostolic age. God in his mercy, God in his providence, permitted one of the soundest, best instructed, at one time spiritually healthiest churches, congregations, uh, in the entire apostolic period, the church in Ephesus. He permitted them to go through a spiritual decline. Uh, and as a spiritual decline that occurred by theological decline in a particular way that is alarming to me, uh, just in the, uh, well, 25 years or so since I began seminary and began, began to be more aware uh, of what is going on theologically in kind of the broader Reformed world, the broader church world. If you just grow up in one church, you might uh, not know, although... Uh, thank God Christian bookstores don't exist anymore. Um, if they could all be like the Reformation Heritage Bookstore, that big new one that they just built in Grand Rapids, we wouldn't say that, but uh, the Christian bookstores that I uh, grew up visiting and um, worked at uh, for uh, nine months at one, uh, they, did, they were not helpful to people theologically uh, or spiritually. Um, so, so you might know what's going on in the broader evangelical world if you visited them, but if you had a faithful, merciful, loving, shepherding pastor, he would tell you not to, uh, or he would have told you not to. Uh, you wanted to read about something, you would ask him, and he would recommend something um, probably that was written hundreds of years ago, uh, maybe not. Uh, but the reason First Timothy is so alarming to me uh, is because the decline that took place that which occasioned the need for a reformation, for the reset of the church in Ephesus, that was actually part of what we have seen 
uh, or what I have seen in the last 20, 25 years, and that is an attempt to have justification without sanctification. Uh, an attempt to have a, a Christ who uh, justifies without making you feel badly uh, and who justifies without sanctifying you. Uh, and, uh, uh, and this had led uh, in Ephesus uh, to uh, the great the, uh, and intense and urgent need for reformation uh, as Paul is writing uh, to Timothy in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, uh, as we're going to see the rest of our uh, rest of our time this morning, uh, especially focuses on the need to put things back in order. Very similar, by the way, to what you see John saying when he uh, addresses Ephesus in, well, not John, sorry, Jesus saying when he addresses Ephesus in uh, John's revelation in Revelation chapter 2. Uh, and uh, if that is around the year 90, uh, you know, that's one thing. Another uh, 27, 28 years uh, or so. But if that's around the year 70 uh, or 67, 68, then it's just another five or six years. Anyway, we won't go into the chronology right now, but it's something that we actually see Ephesus needing multiple times in the New Testament. And if we see Ephesus, where Paul was for three years, where he had this in public and house-to-house ministry, uh, where the the hall of Tyrannus was uh, rented out for five hours a day uh, in, in the middle of the day, uh, and he discipled them. Uh, if Ephesus needed continual refreshment by reformation, uh, then we are unsurprised when we need it, uh, and we are encouraged by God uh, to continually pursue refreshment in reformation, uh, that, uh, that we see what the Lord and his providence did, uh, and we consider... First uh, Timothy, then with the need for reformation, and then Second Timothy, with Paul basically telling Timothy, uh, these things are going to happen again and again. Uh, Timothy had experienced it during Paul's ministry. Timothy had already experienced it to some extent to his, in his own ministry, um, uh, and Paul was telling Timothy he was going to keep experiencing it after Paul was poured out like a drink offering, after Paul was dead, uh, and that Timothy was to continue entrusting to a new generation now uh, of elders those things that uh, he had already been entrusted with, uh, because this turning away from the Lord, this turning away from the truth about Christ, this turning away uh, from a Christ who justifies and who sanctifies and who is returning to judge, this is going to be something that the church repeatedly uh, experiences. Uh, And so in encouraging Timothy uh, to stick to Christ, stick to his word, and trust uh, uh, sound teaching uh, to another generation uh, and the teaching uh, by which the Lord gives union with Christ and produces holiness. Uh, Which is, by the way, uh, another reason uh, not to be bashful or shy 
about the name Presbyterian. Uh, the, the word reformed is fine, uh, but Presbyterian, as, as you all might or might not know, just means elder governed. Uh, and the reason we rejoice uh, to be Presbyterian in particular is because, um, I'll be a little bit cheeky, Jesus is a Presbyterian. Uh, Jesus gave Presbyterianism, especially in all the Bible, the most concentrated dose of Presbyterian ecclesiology is 1 Timothy. And the reason is what the church needs is Christ. And so when Christ comes in 1 Timothy and he gives as the, uh, as the antidote or as the cure to what's going on in Ephesus, the reestablishing uh, of biblical roles and biblical offices uh, within the church uh, and also with implications to within the home, we, we see uh, that our dependence upon Christ means using his means, not because the means are mechanical and they will always produce the result, not, the reason, not because the means are magical and if you do it and wish real hard, the result will appear, uh, but because the means are his and we trust him and we employ them as an act of trusting in him and we trust him as we employ them. So in 1 Timothy uh, uh, chapter uh, 1, verse 3, uh, there's actually a lot there in the first two verses. If you remember, it uh, hadn't been uh, that long, uh, several months, I guess, is a long time for uh, for us. Um, but uh, if you remember, there's actually a lot there in the first two verses. Uh, but he gives uh, the great reason in verse 3, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Uh, and so there was, uh, there was already uh, in this uh, most recent uh, visit and uh, Paul leaving Timothy behind in Ephesus, there were already those uh, in the church uh, like Hymenaeus and Alexander uh, who, were, um, who were teaching inaccurate theology. Uh, it was uh, speculative theology rather than applied theology. Verse 4, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification, uh, which is in faith. Uh, the real Christ, the real gospel, union with him, uh, produces an effect in the life and motivates a changed life. Uh, some of you may ha have met people uh, that just enjoy sitting around and talking theology, and the more difficult and obscure the passage or the doctrine the more they enjoy uh, talking about that passage uh, or about that doctrine. Um, uh, some of you uh, are not wired that way at all, and, and um, that doesn't uh, appeal to you. Uh, but one important aspect uh, of right doctrine, of good doctrine, uh, is that it clings to Christ and it seeks his honor. Uh, and so... Uh, verse 5, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. 
from which some having strayed have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, etc. And one of the um, one of the ironies is that it's actually in Ephesus here, and uh, also like I was saying in my own experience, uh, it's theologically interested people who end up uh, uh, promoting or inventing, although they would say discovering, uh, theological ideas uh, that don't connect the believer to Christ personally and don't then produce devotion to Christ and obedience in the life as uh, the ordinary uh, fruit, the ordinary result of knowing and belonging uh, to the Lord Jesus. Uh, and so uh, that's the problem that they, are, that they have uh, in Ephesus. And so since the problem of ungodly, quote-unquote, Christians came by way of uh, poor theology, and we could even say distracted theology, right? So it wasn't that they weren't doing any Bible teaching. It wasn't that they weren't doing any theology. Uh, you know, we're kind of narrowing the, the target group here, right? There's a whole lot of what is called now the evangelical church that hardly does any Bible teaching or theology. Uh, so, so you know, the, the Holy Spirit's bullseye is kind of zeroing in on us, and we're supposed to take it personally. Uh, but they had distracted theology, uh, distracted from the main point of, uh, of the Bible, which is Christ, uh, and therefore uh, one of the great uh, fruits of union with Christ and his redemption is he destroys the works of the devil and the works of the flesh and produces in us his life, his works, the good works that he prepares beforehand uh, for those whom he saves by his grace. Those ideas are all married together. Uh, and if you, if you don't talk about uh, the law, if you don't talk about his commandments, if you don't talk about holiness, uh, if you're not pursuing that uh, as a church and in your as a household, every one of your household, if you're not pursuing that uh, as a believer, uh, enjoying being joined to Jesus, who makes that difference in you, desiring that he would be glorified as the one who makes that difference in you, uh, then you have been turned aside. Uh, and uh, whether you're using the Bible kind of like a storybook uh, as myths, or uh, whether you're using the Bible as this kind of theological curiosity book, you know, uh, you know finding all sorts of... Uh, interesting things in uh, in genealogies. Now, there is stuff that you can learn uh, from the prayer of Jabez in a gene genealogy, and all genealogies have a theological richness and application. Uh, you know, there was a wonderful point that uh, one, of the, uh, one of the pastors made this week. Is, uh, he showed how, or, or connected how uh, you know, First and Second Chronicles is actually the last book uh, in the Old Testament, uh, and uh, it's written to show that God hasn't lost the genealogy of the Messiah, and 
uh, in God's providence, the Spirit, in our arrangement of the New Testament, gives us Matthew uh, as the first book, uh, and the whole Bible holds together, even, by the way, that the books of the Bible were ordered, going directly into the genealogy of the Messiah in the first book um, uh, of the New Testament. Uh, well, we, we need uh, not only to be theologically, uh, not only to have theological instruction, but not to be uh, theologically uh, distracted. Uh, and so uh, Paul, uh, Paul is urging Timothy to keep faith and a good conscience, which in the Lord's marvelous providence to us is one thing in our morning sermon passage that Paul testifies about himself. Uh, but uh, the end of chapter 1 then, this charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, uh, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And so Hymenaeus and Alexander, probably at some point, uh, having been elders, uh, and being uh, deposed from office and this language of, of handed over to Satan is actually language of excommunication. Uh, they, uh, they are men who uh, were at least, even if they weren't elders, were teachers enough in the church that they were recognized by others and enough to lead others astray. And they've been excommunicated and now the congregation in Ephesus is in a low state. Their understanding of the Bible, their understanding of theology, they're not focusing on the Lord Jesus himself and union with him, uh, and therefore they're not uh, approaching life as, uh, as this living out of union with Christ, living out of, um, uh, out of the life of Jesus in us, uh, they were not living, children, the way each one of you, I hope, uh, is learning from your parents to live, that all of the instruction that you receive about what's right and wrong comes with it, uh, the, uh, the wonderful gospel truth that Jesus himself has lived rightly uh, in your place so that when you trust in him, that obedience is counted as yours, but that Jesus himself is the one who gives his life to be in you by faith, and his spirit produces uh, even uh, what sounds like a simple thing, but you know it's not a simple thing, don't you? Obedience to your parents, obedience to mom and dad. Uh, it was to Ephesus uh, that the apostle wrote, children, obey your parents in the Lord. It's a gospel command. It tells you the only way this honoring obedience from the heart comes by faith in Jesus Christ. And it tells you what faith in Jesus Christ produces. Honoring obedience from the heart. And so it calls you to be the Christian child that God has called you by putting you in a Christian household and calling you a saint. And that means you have to believe in Jesus and that believing in Jesus he will produce his own life in your heart to follow all of his good commandments. 
That's just the very basic, simple Christianity that the whole Bible teaches. And a Christian two-year-old ought to have heard that a you know, hundred times uh, in his or, or her experience in everyday life with mom and dad. Uh, but whole churches and, uh, and great sections of Christianity or so-called the visible, the great section of the visible church uh, can lose that uh, by men like Hymenaeus and Alexander. So that's what First Timothy is written to put in order. Uh, and we're not going to get there uh, today. It's in the grade part at the bottom. But uh, one of the reasons for spending all this time uh, recognizing what's going on in First Timothy is because 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13 is the New Testament passage on the qualifications uh, of the deacon. Uh, that's the passage that is in contention at the Synod uh, when we talk about uh, whom Christ is calling and gifting uh, to be deacons uh, by his Spirit. So there's the Reformation purpose of 1 Timothy, uh, correcting what has gone wrong in Ephesus. Uh, and if, uh, if I haven't been, um, you know, maybe I, I haven't uh, been clear uh, enough about it, but because we are kind of in, we're in the same place, uh, aren't we? The things that we need to fight against, uh, the things that have uh, grown up in the churches, uh, you know, what, uh, what one might call uh, cheap grace. Uh, so what is then the solution? If that's the, uh, if that's the need, if 1 Timothy is written for a Reformation pr- purpose, what's the solution? How does the Spirit-inspired apostle tell Timothy to address this need? And so the very first thing that he, uh, that he does then uh, in chapters 2 and 3 uh, is this restoration of, of Christ-appointed roles in the home and in the congregation, uh, and the two overlap, but Christ-appointed roles in the congregation because we hope, we are sure, by faith in him we trust, that's a better word, that they will be Christ-employed roles. Uh, Now, I don't know how many of you uh, have heard uh, evangelicals and if... uh, uh, if you've used this kind of language, there's grace, and I, uh, I hope you haven't used it as silly in as silly a way uh, as the illustration is going to be. But like, I am trusting the Lord for, and then you insert uh, whatever earthly material, whatever uh, thing it is uh, that uh, that you want. Well, we need to trust the Lord for the Lord's use of what the Lord has appointed. We should trust the Lord to keep his word, to keep his will. You don't trust the Lord to keep your own will. You don't trust the Lord to keep your own ideas, your own word. If it's something that you don't know about, then in submission to him, you express your desire and you yield to him. And that's uh, that's sweet just to be able to do that. Uh, But if we are trusting the Lord for reformation in the churches, then what we need is a restoration of the biblical role of men and the biblical role of women 
and the biblical role of the office of the elder and the biblical role of the office of the deacon, uh, that is what the Lord Jesus has appointed in his church for directing his people to union with himself uh, and growing them in union with himself by way of the means of grace and then structuring their, or encouraging and helping their living in union with him, uh, especially, uh, as we'll see, uh, by the ministry of the diaconates. You have elders who are, who are over the ministry and the means of grace, uh, and deacons who are over uh, uh, and disciple the church in the expression of our union with Christ in how we live, uh, live in this world, use the things uh, of this world. Uh, so what sorts of things are being restored? Uh, first, uh, the, role of a, the role of a man. A uh, man being uh, the, the husband or father, and then the men uh, in the church uh, being little imitators of Christ. Christ is the last great prophet. Moses said, a prophet like me will arise. Christ is that prophet. He is the great high priest. Uh, he has a priesthood that goes from before Aaron uh, and uh, continues uh, after the Aaronic Levitical priests. He is the forever king. Uh, and we have this, uh, this great, uh, uh, great reference to Christ as the great mediator. mediator. Uh, and so the mediatorial offices, the prophet, priest, and king, those who stand between God and man for their, their, their various purposes. But husbands and fathers and men in the congregation have, and these are you know, little p and little k, prophetic, priestly, and kingly roles in their households uh, and serve the Lord Jesus uh, in their roles, the particular officers, um, whether it's overseeing or whether it's uh, uh, preaching, uh, or uh, leading the church in prayer. Uh, so there's this, uh, there's this immediate connection to Christ the mediator. And he says, therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving and thanks be made for all men. Why? Because God is, uh, the, the whole course of history is redemptive history. God is reconciling men to himself by Jesus Christ. And so one of the great things that Jesus does as the one mediator between God and man is he is an intercessor. And so he has an interceding church. This is one of the things, if, uh, if you've been to uh, almost any of the midweek meetings, when we finish the intercession time together at the end, um, uh, and just in the order of how we've been doing it, I'm the one who concludes that, uh, and often... Uh, what do I lead us in doing? Marveling that this interceding for the world that really belongs to Jesus is something that we as a congregation have just gotten to do for the last 15, 20 minutes. That we've been privileged to do something uh, that belongs to Christ, belongs uh, to the Spirit. Uh, and so there's that description of Christ in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 2. Uh, I see we're going to uh, we're going to have to stop there. We'll come back and, uh, and pick this up. We'll probably do uh, from the beginning of chapter 2 next week. But there's that role 
that belongs to Christ that the church imitates him in. And then within that role, there is especially the leadership of men. When he says, I desire therefore that the men pray everywhere. And he uses the male-specific form uh, of the word men. That means in the home, there is a, a, an emphasis and a role of the husband and father and also of the young men as, uh, as they're growing up in, in the home, learning and growing into more and more, leading the family in prayer before God, lifting up holy hands. Do girls pray? Of course girls pray. Uh, uh, wives should pray uh, with their husbands. You know, Guge has um, you know, a wonderful section on that in one of his books that we don't have time to recap for you, but basically for the good of the wife and for the good of the husband, ask me about it later. Uh, but there is a special responsibility and a special imitation of Christ in the man having a spiritual leadership role in the home. And notice that he doesn't begin with teaching and authority, teaching and ruling. He begins with the man's leading in prayer. And that's because the home is a Christ-dependent place, even before it is a Christ-devoted place. It can't be a Christ-devoted place before it's a Christ-dependent place. And so that's not just in um, the home, but that's also in the church. Uh, and that's why in every Reformation you see the recovery of the prayer meeting uh, right at the beginning of uh, of that Reformation uh, is because we are Christ-dependent before we can be Christ-devoted. Uh, anyway, we'll come back uh, and pick that up, but uh, the role of men, the role of women, uh, and if you've been paying attention at all to America for the last 150 years, I was going to say a few years, but the feminism thing has been going a while, um, you know that this is a place where the home has been attacked and the church has been attacked the society has been attacked, and really Christ as creator and redeemer uh, is being rejected and rebelled against. Uh, but if we're going to have reformation, and if we're going to have a properly ordered diaconate, which is where we're getting in verses 8 to 13 of the next chapter, in its proper context, context we're going to want it within all of these roles uh, uh, properly uh, properly viewed and restored, the Lord helping us by his grace. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have given yourself to us in the Son and that you have given us to yourself also in your Son. And we pray for your Spirit's powerful, strengthening, gladdening work in us uh, for both of these things. Uh, we thank you that we uh, we come from thinking about the restoration of these things in Reformation right into the worship service uh, in which we enjoy these things the most. You giving yourself to us. Help us by your spirit, we pray. And give yourself to us by the means of your grace as you display yourself glorious before the faith of your people. And help us by your spirit, we pray, to give ourselves to you, to offer our hearts, our minds, our singing, our praying, our reading, our preaching, our hearing and preaching, our supping, all of it, 
as the offering of ourselves to you. Glorify yourself in your church now we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.